Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. The U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom held a hearing on religious freedom in Russia and Central Asia on September 16th. One of the participants was Dr. Emily Barron, interim chair of the Department of History, who spoke about the treatment of Jehovah's Witnesses in Russia. Discrimination and terrorism against religious groups in Russia and Eastern Europe did not end with the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991. We'll find out more after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. The MTSU College of Basic and Applied Sciences has something in store for aspiring scientists. In-person CBAS Science Saturdays will take place at 9 and 11 a.m. on January 30th and February 20th. The idea is to bring prospective high school and transfer students to MTSU and show off the facilities. The recruiting events are a collaboration between the College of Basic and Applied Sciences and the Office of Admissions. Dean Bud Fisher said the CBAS Science Saturday, scheduled for January 9th, was canceled. That was due to Governor Bill Lee's recent executive order to limit indoor attendance to groups of 10 because of COVID-19 until at least January 19th. The January 30th and February 20th events are subject to change based on any new state or university mandates. Space is limited to one student, one guest, and one calendar date per registration. Some prospective students have received personal invitations which guide them through the event registration process. And as the Greater Nashville Technology Council prepares to roll out a national marketing campaign to attract more highly valued technology workers to the region, the tech sector is on a roll. According to the Tech Council's 2020 State of Middle Tennessee Tech Report, released recently and prepared in partnership with MTSU, the number of tech jobs in the mid-state grew by 36% during the 2014 to 2019 five-year period. This was far ahead of the 23% national tech job growth rate during the same period, as well as the 28% statewide growth in tech jobs and the overall growth rate of 16% for all jobs in Middle Tennessee. That's according to a GNTC release. This phenomenal growth of tech jobs in Middle Tennessee is expected to slow over the next five years, with the report predicting 16% growth from 2019 to 2024. That's some 20 points below the rate of the previous five years. However, Middle Tennessee is still forecast to far outpace the nation in the growth of tech jobs by 2024, with only 9% growth expected nationally. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Dr. Barron, thank you for joining us. We appreciate you being on the program. Happy to come here, virtually. Virtually. Why did the Soviet Union round up Jehovah's Witnesses during the Cold War and ship them to Siberia? That's an excellent question. I think um, there's a lot of answers, but... Fundamentally, I think there's a couple things that everyone needs to understand. Um, if we think about who the Jehovah's Witnesses are, right, we probably first think of people knocking on doors in the United States, right, with a magazine. And that kind of evangelical outreach, right, um, in which um, you're expected to share your faith with another individual uh, was really not acceptable in the Soviet Union. And it was, in fact, illegal. Um, you didn't have um, the legal right, the constitutional right in the Soviet Union to go and speak about your faith 
um, to another individual. You had the right to do the exact same thing, but for atheism. So you could go and talk to um, a fellow citizen about atheism. That was enshrined in law, um, but not about religion. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses outreach to other people about their faith was certainly a major problem for the Soviet Union. The other issue here is that the Jehovah's Witnesses were almost all right along the border um, with the Soviet Union's uh, sort of Western border, right? So if you think about um, where the Soviet Union lies, um, and then you just fought World War II, the Soviet Union has annexed a lot of territory on its Western side. Um, and that was how they got Jehovah's Witnesses. They, Jehovah's Witnesses didn't largely move into the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union moved into territories that had Jehovah's Witnesses. And so the Soviet Union didn't want religious uh, individuals um, who they didn't see as particularly loyal living along their border. Um, and so right after World War II, almost as soon as these, these folks become Soviet citizens, um, as you mentioned, Stalin undertakes this massive exile effort to basically move all of those peoples out of a vulnerable borderland area in his mind into the middle of nowhere. So, you know, in the Soviet interior, either the far uh, east or Siberia, where the assumption was they would basically only be able to interact with themselves and they wouldn't pose a threat to the rest of uh, Soviet society. They wouldn't pose a threat to Soviet security after the war. So when the Soviets invaded Hungary in the 50s and when they invaded Prague in 1968, that rounding up Jehovah's Witnesses was part and parcel of the entire exercise, right? Well, those are two, I would say those are two very different processes. Um, you know, the Hungarian Revolution in 1956, uh, the Prague Spring in 1968, um, those, were, those were Soviet incursions into ostensibly um, a foreign country. Now, of course, um, we know the reality was that the Soviet Union was heavily invested and indeed in control of much of Eastern Europe during this period. Um, but that was actually, in fact, an invasion, even though ostensibly, again, they had been invited to enter these territories by the governments in charge. Um, with the witnesses, these were internal territories. So these were part, these were witnesses living within the borders of the Soviet Union. Um, and I think the the reasoning then and the way in which it played out was, was fairly different. Um, I will say that the Soviet Union did do this sort of exile to other groups. Uh, the witnesses are a bit unusual in that they were a religious group, um, but the Soviet Union carried out mass exiles of specific ethnic groups that were seen as disloyal. So for example, the example, the Chechens, um, one of the ethnic groups that lives in the south of Russia were exiled as a people um, right around the same time. The, some German populations, some Tatar populations, uh, groups of people engaged in uh, illegal business activity, people that had been involved in intellectual or political activity in these territories before they were annexed. Um, there's a whole kind of list of people that were slated for what was called special exile. Um, and the idea was basically remove people from areas that the Soviet Union was particularly concerned about for a security reason and put them somewhere far in the interior. Um, of course, that has a long history within this territory, even going back to the Russian Empire, of using its own territory as a kind of open prison house for undesirable people. So what sorts of persecution did those who were not exiled endure? Right, so exile is obviously the most extreme measure, and that happens in 1949 and 1951. But yeah, as you mentioned, not everyone is exiled. Um, there's at least one large territory on the borderlands that isn't included in the exile orders. So this exile was carried out 
really suddenly without, without a lot of planning. Some people just weren't on the list. Some people were on the list and were not Jehovah's Witnesses and ended up in Siberia and had to kind of argue their case to get out of there. Um, and then of course, after 1951, when the second exile occurs, through 1991, when the Soviet Union collapses, people are still arrested. People are still subject to harassment at work. Um, I mentioned that it was, a, it was legal to advocate atheism. So a lot of what witnesses experienced between 51 and 91 was just a kind of low level peer pressure or harassment um, at their job, from their neighbors, from their supervisors, from people in the community to try to, you know, badger them in some ways um, to reject this religion and kind of come back to mainstream society. Uh, and this was actually part of the Soviet Union's official policy towards religious believers, that the best way to make a religious believer into someone who was non-religious was to go out to them and almost kind of convert them to atheism. We'll take a break right here. We'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the Record. The Middle Tennessee State University Women's Studies Research Series features compelling monthly talks on gender-related topics by faculty and graduate students. The series offers a chance to learn about research and progress and to chat with faculty in an informal setting. All lectures are free and open to the public and are held on the MTSU campus. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The Middle Tennessee Writing Project is a program that fosters the effective teaching of writing to students in kindergarten through high school. The project hosts annual summer institutes where teacher participants teach and learn from each other effective techniques of teaching writing. In addition, the project sponsors summer writers camps for youngsters. MTSU is one of 185 sites of the National Writing Project and one of only two in Tennessee. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking with Dr. Emily Barron, Interim Chair of the Department of History, uh, who researches uh, the religious persecution of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses in uh, Russia and spoke at the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedoms hearing on September the 16th. How did the, the denomination of Jehovah's Witnesses gain the reputation of a cult in the minds of so many Russians? Well, I would say you can even ask that question without in the minds of so many Russians on the end, which is that if we're being honest about um, our society, if we're being honest about sort of other countries, the reality is that a lot of people, um, you know, aren't particularly tolerant of Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, I can't tell you how often when I've done the research and talked about my research and not just in Russia, people's first reaction to hearing the topic as Jehovah's Witnesses is basically like, oh, like them, the people that, and then insert a story about some, uh, you know, obnoxious person at your door who may or may not have been a witness. Oftentimes the way someone describes this incident to me, it's very clear. It, in fact, was some other missionary group because the way it's, it played out was not even possible for a Jehovah's Witness. And in American history too, um, we have a pretty extensive history of harassment and violence against witnesses as well within in the, in the 20th century. Um, for two years, witnesses uh, were banned from sending their children to public schools in the United States because they refused to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, there was mob violence against Jehovah's Witnesses um, in the mid 20th century in the United States. Um, there have been multiple Supreme Court decisions in the United States enshrining the rights of Jehovah's Witnesses after they had experienced some form of discrimination because of their faith here. So I think 
to understand the Russian reaction, you really just need to understand the general reaction of many people um, to being um, sort of um, evangelized to, right? Not everyone appreciates the knock at the door. Not everyone appreciates being talked to about matters of faith. And then when you layer onto that, the fact that the Soviet Union was particularly hostile to religion, then you can really begin to understand why it was such an unwelcoming environment um, for Jehovah's Witnesses, um, not just in the Soviet Union, but in Russia today. Because most people's instinctive reaction to Jehovah's Witnesses is not positive, um, unless they personally know a Jehovah's Witness, and most people don't. There are laws in place that restrict practitioners of the faith in Russia. What are some of those laws? So the biggest law, really the most relevant law for what the witnesses are facing in Russia today is the 2002 law that was supposed to regulate um, extremism. You know, this, the Russia, like the United States, experienced a wave of terrorist attacks um, in the uh, mid and late 1990s and into the early 2000s. And one of the reactions to that was a very expansive anti-extremism law that ostensibly was supposed to curtail extremist activity um, the ability of extremist groups to circulate damaging um, extremist literature. The problem is that the law was written in such a way that it was extremely broad. And so within this law is just such a broad definition of extremism that it could include really any religion. Because one of the things it says is that you can't say that you are superior or your group is superior on the basis of your faith. So you basically can't preach the superiority of one religion to another, which is true of almost every religion. It's certainly true of most mainstream religions, right? Um, mm -hmm. And yet the witnesses have been targeted through that law um, while other religions haven't been. And so it's that law that caused the witnesses to be banned and their organization dissolved in 2017. Um, they were declared officially extremists. Um, the organization yeah. was declared extremists. Their publications were declared extremists. Now, if they go to a neighbor, to a friend, even to someone else who's also a Jehovah's Witness and speak about that faith to another individual, that's basically spreading extremism. And there's at least 10 Jehovah's Witnesses currently in Russia serving prison time for doing so. What role has the Orthodox Church played in trying to keep Jehovah's Witnesses down? I would say that since the 1990s, the Orthodox Church's position has been that you know, the Soviet Union collapses in December 1991. And almost immediately, there's this religious marketplace that opens. All these faiths, some of which had already existed in, the, in Russia, some of which had not, are free to evangelize, free to find um, new interested people. A lot of people have spent the 1990s kind of almost shopping around among religions. For the Orthodox Church, this is a really difficult time. Um, in their minds, um, suddenly, uh, Russia had been restored, um, the official uh, persecution of the Orthodox Church had ended, and they wanted a period, um, almost a waiting period, for them to be able to rebuild, to revive themselves, to have a chance to reach out to people they saw as sort of part of a lost flock uh, of uh, people who would be Orthodox if it hadn't been for the Soviet period. And they really resented particularly Western efforts um, and Western religions who were seen as better resourced, better financed, better organized, and were kind of 
coming in on Russian territory and um, competing with the Orthodox Church. And so a lot of the anim animosity from the Orthodox Church to Jehovah's Witnesses comes from that, that sense that um, this is really Russian territory, this is nationally Orthodox territory, therefore, and that um, this is really inappropriate for other Western groups to be competing um, with them. But the Orthodox Church has lasted for centuries. Do they really perceive the Jehovah's Witnesses as some kind of a threat? I mean, that's an interesting question. Are the Jehovah's Witnesses a significant threat to the Orthodox Church? No, probably not, right? I mean, yeah, you're talking about a majority religion for most um, Russian citizens, and certainly for most um, Russian citizens who are Russian in terms of their national origin. Um, the Witnesses are a tiny um, minority um, in both of those populations, less than 1%. But of course, perception and reality are not always the same thing, right? Yeah. So why does discrimination against Jehovah's Witnesses continue today? Is it because of the laws? Is it because of the Putin regime? Is it because of uh, tradition or all of the above? Probably all of the above. Um, I think in some ways the Witnesses were just the easiest target. Um, they were not... Um, they're not an ecumenical religion. They don't participate in ecumenical efforts among other um, faiths, other Christian denominations. Um, they don't typically have a lot of supporters outside of their faith. Um, they tend to be a, a fairly closed uh, community, um, although obviously they're doing a lot of evangel evangelistic activities. Um, and so I think the sense was that targeting them would be fairly simple um, and would be fairly popular. And that's probably unfortunately true. Um, there hasn't been a huge popular outcry within Russia against this. There certainly has been internationally, um, European governments, the US government, NGOs, human rights organizations, many groups have spoken out against the persecution of witnesses in Russia. Um, but otherwise within Russia, um, this has not faced a, a huge amount of backlash outside of within of course the witness community itself. Time for another break. We'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. The Army ROTC College Program at MTSU prepares students mentally, physically, and emotionally to become leaders and promotes virtues of duty, honor, country. ROTC cadets are involved in all academic disciplines, athletics, and student organizations at MTSU. Full scholarships and tuition assistance are awarded based on merit. All cadets upon graduation will serve their country as second lieutenants either in the Army, Army Reserve, or Army National Guard. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking with Dr. Emily Barron, Interim Chair of the Department of History. She testified before the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, which held a hearing on religious freedom in Russia and Central Asia on September 16th, virtually, of course. Uh, what was the most important thing you learned from your colleagues in that hearing? Well, I think, you know, my research is heavily focused on uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses. And so that's really my, been my area of expertise over the past 10 or 15 years. Um, and so 
uh, the hearing was was broader than that. Um, it was looking at some of the the larger issues um, for religious freedom, both in Russia and in Central Asia. And uh, it, it's complicated. There are um, you know, there are reasons for optimism in some instances, um, just as there are reasons for concern across the region. Um, and I, I think it's hard and, and should be avoided making sort of any simplistic um, conclusions about the state of religious freedom across the former Soviet uh, countries, because it really does vary quite a bit. As an academic, how do you research a subject that is cloaked in so much intrigue and seems to defy documentation, or at least the people who do document it are risking all kinds of hell, maybe even death, to document it? I don't know how I would research um, today if I was writing. I wrote a book on the Jehovah's Witness community in uh, the post-Soviet world and in the Soviet Union. But that story in the book, I think I ended in 2012 or 2013. I don't know how I would research it today because it would be quite different. You're right. When I was researching it, um, there were some serious warning signs already. Um, there had been a series of very protracted trials in the city of Moscow against the local Jehovah's Witness community. There were already um, cases before the European Court of Human Rights on violations by the Russian government against Jehovah's Witnesses. But I was still able to freely move, walk, you know, walk around, um, you know, Russia, Ukraine, Moldova, and interview witnesses and talk to them very freely about their faith. I think today um, that would be more complicated in Russia, um, and it would present more ethical challenges for me in terms of not endangering um, people who are at the heart of this, you know, historical narrative. Um, for the Soviet period, it's much more straightforward in that there is an incredibly large amount of documentation um, in the former Soviet archives um, among um, Jehovah's Witnesses who lived through those time periods. Some have published memoirs, some made themselves available to me so that I could interview them. Um, and uh, in each instance, I worked closely with the local Jehovah's Witness offices um, to uh, locate individuals, to share my research, and to make sure that the story I was telling um, was one that they would recognize. Um, even if, of course, as a historian, I'm going to tell that story a little bit differently than someone who's a believer. I wanted that narrative to be accurate and to be recognizable. Yeah. How do we know about the practice of the faith clandestinely and in private homes? Uh, how has this kind of information leaked out to the West? Today or in the Soviet Union? Uh, either or. So in the Soviet Union, there's a lot of sources for that information, one of which is that there were informants um, in the Soviet Union. Um, so you have a lot of information from people who had either joined the organization and had left but continued to report on it. Um, there was a fair amount of publications by former believers. That was a whole genre of literature in the Soviet Union, testimonials from former believers about what they had experienced as a believer in a specific closed community. Um, we have, as I mentioned, we have some memoirs from Jehovah's Witnesses who wrote them and published them in the 1990s. Um, I have interviewed a small handful of Soviet uh, Jehovah's Witnesses um, when I was doing my research back in the 1990s as well and the two, early 2000s. Um, there's a lot in the Soviet archives, um, a surprising amount. Um, some of it accurate, some of it not. Um, and so the challenge of any historian is always to try to read the document, but also interpret the document and to determine what's actually going on. What 
can Jehovah's Witnesses in democratized countries like the United States and Western European countries do to help their fellow adherents in uh, the former Soviet countries? Do you have any sort of uh, indications that they are trying to uh, help them the way Jews in this country tried to help the refuseniks during the Soviet era? I would say that um, Jehovah's Witnesses worldwide are doing everything they possibly can. Um, they've organized um, public awareness campaigns in Russia. Um, they have organized petition campaigns, letter writing campaigns. Um, these are worldwide campaigns, so not just Russian witnesses, um, and particularly because Russian witnesses now are not as well positioned to help one another as perhaps people outside. The organization itself is obviously doing everything it can to support these communities, provide legal support when possible, um, try, because there is quite a lot um, legally going on here. As I mentioned, um, there's 10 people who have already been convicted as extremists, but there's a lot more awaiting trial in pretrial detention, um, being subject to search and seizure. Um, and so, um, with, you know, my sense is that the organization is doing everything it can to support those individuals. But of course, you know, it is a really difficult, really difficult situation for everyone. Is Amnesty International on the case? I don't know about their specific outreach efforts. I believe um, they and other major human rights organizations have certainly put out statements um, decrying um, the 2017 uh, ban on Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm not, I'm not certain beyond that. I don't have details on that particular effort. Okay. Uh, if people want to find out more and they're interested uh, in this subject, how would they get in contact with you? Um, well, you can always look me up on MTSU's homepage. Um, if you just search my name at MTSU, you'll find um, my profile on the History Department's webpage. And that's probably the easiest way to reach me. I'm at emily.barrett at mtsu.edu. So that's uh, pretty easy. Okay. Dr. Emily Barron, thank you for being our guest today. We appreciate it. Happy to do so. We'll be right back. The Concrete Industry Management Program at MTSU fills the need for trained personnel who know concrete technology and techniques. Our alumni go into the marketplace grounded in basic math and science and able to promote products or services related to the industry. Our participation in the academic common market ensures talented students in other states a chance to enroll on an in-state tuition basis. This is Dr. Heather Brown, director of the program. To find out more information on this or other university programs, visit mtsunews.com. The MTSU Department of Art has the newest facility for visual arts in the state with approximately 50,000 square feet of space, including high-tech computers and computer-driven equipment for multimedia, graphic design, printmaking, sculpture, painting, and ceramics. We feature a visiting artist lecture program and an exhibition program that exposes students to work by national and international artists. To find out more, visit mtsunews.com. Gina Fan has the middle moment. MTSU's Mike Forbes, Assistant Director for Technical Systems in the Department of Media Arts, is one of a thousand Nashville area volunteers who've been helping with Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine study. He stepped up because he saw the entertainment industry grinding to a halt, affecting colleagues and friends' jobs and his students' future livelihoods. Now, after recovering from his own bout with the coronavirus, he's encouraging everyone to get the vaccine. I look at this as a stepping stone. We will get over COVID. 
we will get through this as a country. We will return to normal, whatever that may be. But this technology that they have used to develop this vaccine, it's called mRNA. It's a game changer for a lot of things. It's not only going to fix COVID. It is going to be a major contributor to solving many issues that we've never been able to replicate and, and fix, like HIV, you know, the common cold, the flu. All of these things are going to be something that we may be able to tackle now because we have the technology and research to be able to back that science up. I just love the fact that, you know, this is just one piece of the puzzle. This could be a game changer for people that have been suffering from all these diseases. This could be the, the technology that gets us around that corner. That's MTSU on the record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's marketing and communications office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.